today, and it's more than just an intellectual truth. It's more than just, I get it. I get that Jesus was God. I get that he came. Uh, but I, I, I pray, and the only way we're going to get it is if the Holy Spirit helps us get it. Does that make sense? Like you can't, apart from him, we can do nothing. You can sit and, and read this book from cover to cover, and it will have no impact on your life if you don't invite the Holy Spirit to come and have an impact in your life. You know, you know what I'm saying? If you don't put faith in Christ and allow the Holy Spirit by faith in Christ to come and live in you, this book does nothing for you. Does that make sense? It doesn't do anything for us apart from our faith in Christ. And so uh, my prayer is that we, we get that, we understand that, and we walk in that um, as we go through the rest of our service today. We're gonna dismiss just our uh, preschoolers and kindergartners for class today. Uh, we don't have our regular children's church, but if our preschoolers and, and kindergartners wanna go ahead and meet their teacher out in the foyer, uh, we are gonna dismiss the, the older children. At the end of the service today, we're gonna take communion together and uh, we're gonna dismiss them. And Pastor John is gonna take those older children downstairs at that point and uh, have communion with them down there. And uh, we're gonna have communion together uh, up here. And so uh, we'll announce that to you a, bit, a little bit later in the service today. But are you glad that Jesus came? Yeah, I, me too. Um, we've been in this series on Hebrews and I feel like um, I've already repeated myself a lot and I feel like I'm gonna repeat myself a lot in the weeks ahead as we go through the book of Hebrews because the writer of Hebrews seems to repeat themselves a lot, which is good because sometimes we need to hear something seven or eight times before we actually hear it, right? Especially men, we need to hear it several times before we get it. So wives, you know, you have to be like God. You have to be patient, full of mercy, repeating over and over again till your husband hears and receives the words that you are speaking. And so um, God will enable you to do that. But we've been in this series going through the book of Hebrews. We're on chapter two today. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Hebrews chapter two. And uh, this is part four in this series. And the other ones are on our website, on our podcast, if you want to catch up or if you want to hear them. Uh, we covered a lot of introductory talk topics in the first couple of weeks on the book of Hebrews. Um, the book of Hebrews was written. Uh, we don't know who wrote it. It was an unknown person. They don't name themselves in this letter. We do know that it was written to Hebrews, to Jewish Christians who were going through hardship. They were facing torture, they were facing murder, they were facing loss of uh, property, they were facing uh, loss of loved ones, there was all kinds of things being done to them, and because of that, some of them were considering walking away from the faith and going back to the old way of life, the, the Judaism, the, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant that Jesus came better than. And so the writer of Hebrews understands that, and he, they write to them, and this is an encouragement, don't turn back, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how hard it is, they're, they're reminding them over and over again, there's no other option. Don't go back. Jesus is better than anything else. Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the other high priests. Jesus is better than the old covenant. Jesus is better. And even though you're facing hardship and even though it looks like the decision to follow Jesus is actually costing you more than it would have cost you to not follow Jesus, understand this, Jesus is better. 
He's even better than the persecution you face now because he reigns forever and ever and he will reward you if you stay faithful to him. And that's what we're gonna see as we continue to go through these weeks ahead. Last week, we talked about the warning. Uh, the first of five warnings that are in the book of Hebrews against drifting away. And we were told that drifting away is very subtle. And if we don't pay attention to the words we hear and we don't put them into practice in our lives, we don't pay attention to Jesus, we don't pay attention to his word, we don't stay diligently obedient to him, if we don't pay attention to his body, if we don't pay attention to meeting together, if we don't pay attention to uh, intentional relationships with one another, we will drift away from it. And at some point, we're gonna think we're still over here where we started, but we're really, in reality, gonna be over there. And if if we would take our lives and not look at other people and not look around, but we would look at the shoreline, we would look where Jesus is, what Jesus told us to do, we would realize we've drifted from what Jesus told us to do and we need to get back there. No more rationalizing, no more saying, well, you know, life is hard and I know Jesus said that and I know I've drifted over here, but he understands. No, you drifted. And we've got to get back to where he's told us to get back from. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus himself told us this story. He told the parable of the sower that we refer to where the seed or the word of God was scattered. And there were four different types of soil that it fell on. Four different types of hearts, individuals. One of them completely rejected it. The word of God was preached, Jesus spoke, and that person said, I don't want none of it, I'm turning my back, forget it. That's one response. The, the fourth response was a good response. That person received the word, was diligent to apply the word, to trust the word, to cling to the word, and it produced a harvest in their life. But there were two, two, two types of soil that Jesus referred to. One was the rocky soil. These people would face trouble, hardship, and persecution, and because that word did not take deep root in their life, because they did not diligently pay attention to it and put it into practice, those trials, those hardships scorched it. It doesn't say it happened overnight. It doesn't say that, you know, it sprung up and then died the next day. What happened is because there wasn't diligence with the word, they drifted away and eventually the word was scorched by trials, persecutions, and troubles, just like the book of Hebrews. The thorny soil that Jesus referred to would be choked out by the cares of this life. We talked about this last week. You, we just get busy. And I didn't mean to neglect the word. I never at one time said, I'm never reading the Bible again. This book is worthless. I just got busy and I stopped reading. I stopped making time for it. I stopped seeing the importance of it. And because of that, the word that was sown in my life back there gets choked out by the cares and the anxieties of life, the busyness of life. I never meant to turn my back on the church. I never meant to turn my back on Jesus. I never meant to turn, I never purposely said, I'm not following Jesus anymore. I just got busy and I drifted away. And we're gonna keep coming back to these warnings because the writer of Hebrews continues to bring them up as we go through the, the book. But today, as I promised, ladies, we're gonna talk about the perfect man. The perfect man. Yeah, and I already told you it was Jesus, so for those of you that were hoping for more, um, <laughs> Jesus is better than your idea of the perfect man. <laughs> you know, as you, 
As you think about that idea, you know, we hear commercials all the time that if you buy into this uh, exercise program or you buy into this diet routine, you're going to be the perfect man. You're going to have the perfect physique. Or if you just, you know, do this, you're going to be successful in business. And that, maybe that's your idea of the, the perfect man, very successful, very wealthy, very intelligent, whatever your ideal is. But the Bible clearly tells us that there were only two perfect men ever created. Well, one of them really wasn't created he just came as a man there are only two perfect men ever one of them was Adam that we learned about back in Genesis chapter 1 2 and 3 he was created perfect but he didn't stay there very long well we don't know how long he was perfect in the garden before he chose to to rebel against God and lost that state of perfection he was created perfect but he didn't stay there Jesus then comes along later on and he is the second Adam perfect human and he never fails In fact, today, he still stands perfect at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. And so that's what we're going to look at as we read through the book of Hebrews today. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to read verses 5 through 18. Verses 5 through 18. This is what it says. Furthermore, it is not to angels who will control the future world we are talking about. For in one place, the scriptures say, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? Or a son of man that you should care for him? You made them only a little lower than the angels, crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them authority over all things. Now when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. But we have not yet seen all things put under their authority. What we do see is Jesus, who was given a position a little lower than the angels. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader fit to bring them into their salvation. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. For he said to God, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. He also said, I will put my trust in him. That is I and the children God has given me. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have ever lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We also know that the Son of God did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested." There's a lot of stuff in there. We're in the middle of a conversation about angels. 
If you've been here for the last several weeks, this conversation starts all the way back in chapter one, verse five, how Jesus is better than angels. And it continues through the pause last week when we talked about the warning not to drift away. Remember, the warning was given because the message that was given before by angels, if it was ignored or rejected, there was a great punishment. There was a great cost associated with it. So the writer says, if that's the case, then this better message that comes through Jesus would also cause us to suffer loss even more so. And that's what we talked about last week. That's why we pay attention because of that. And then he goes right back into this conversation about angels and he says that these angels that we're talking about are not gonna rule the future world that we're talking about, okay? Jesus is better than angels because he rules the future world. Now, angels don't rule right now either. Jesus rules right now, but he's, again, comparing and contrasting, saying Jesus is better than angels because in the mind of the Hebrews, in the minds of these Jews, angels would be pretty potent, pretty powerful. So Jesus is better than that. Jesus is the one that commands the angels. They are his servants. And then in the rest of this chapter, he goes on to explain how Jesus, is, had, how Jesus has become the ruler of this future age. He wasn't just made the ruler of the future age. And it might seem weird, okay? The God of the universe, the creator, why isn't he just the ruler? And we'll see that and understand that as we go, how God had to use Jesus to become the ruler of the world to come. And uh, it just, it seems mind-blowing how the almighty God is not ruler of the world to come, but he knew he would be again, and he is because of what Jesus did. So if you're taking notes today, there's three words that you can remember. When Jesus came in this plan that God had, the word restore, the word release, and the word relate restore, release, and relate. When Jesus came to this earth, he came to restore God's original plan. He came to restore dominion of the earth back to mankind. In Genesis chapter one, when God creates man, he creates them in his image and he gives them authority on the earth to be his representative and to exercise dominion on the earth, rulership over the plants, over the animals, over every part of the earth. Adam loses that when he willfully disobeys God and he surrenders that dominion to Satan, as we'll read right here in Hebrews chapter two. Jesus comes to restore back what God or what Adam lost to the the enemy, to Satan. And it's interesting because this is maybe how some of us say things when we're talking to someone about our faith we're like well somewhere in the scripture it says this and that's what the writer of hebrews does they don't reference the verse they don't reference who spoke in the old testament Uh, we can find it and we're gonna we're gonna look at it it's from psalm chapter 8 and it's david but why doesn't the author of hebrews just say david spoke back in psalm 8 or david spoke in the psalms there's no reference to it And there's a lot of speculation as to why, but this is, again, one of the reasons, I don't know that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, because if the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, in every other book, he references Old Testament scriptures and who spoke it. No reference to that here. So this person, by not putting their name on the book and not putting the name associated with whoever said this in the scriptures, what that person is saying is, you know, it doesn't matter the human element. 
Whoever spoke it, it doesn't matter. The author of it was God, and that's all that matters. Okay? So some of us like to say, well, somewhere in the scriptures it says a stitch in time saves nine. Okay? No, it doesn't. Okay, so you can't just throw the reference, or you can't just say, well, I think in the scriptures it says, okay, you gotta prove it. And so this person says, somewhere in the scripture it says this, and we can look back and we can see, yes, it does, and so it's valid. Okay, so when you start throwing out statements that say, somewhere in the Bible it says this, uh, let's look that up, make sure it says that. But we can look back to Psalm chapter eight, and we can see this. Now, the writer of Hebrews quotes this from the Septuagint. I know this is a lot of big words I'm giving you today, but the Septuagint was the Greek Old Testament. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the language Hebrew. It was translated in the New Testament time into Greek, the language they spoke that day. And it was translated into Greek known as the Septuagint. So when Paul quotes scripture, he was a Pharisee, he was learned. He quoted it from the Hebrew scriptures. This writer quotes it from the Greek scripture, and that's a big deal. The reason I'm telling you this is we're gonna see in a moment why that is. Because the Greek translation of this verse is a lot different than the Hebrew version of the verse. Psalm chapter eight, David writes these words. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you set in place, what are mere mortals, what are men, that you should think about them? human beings, that you should care for them. Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority, the flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea and everything that swims the ocean currents. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Psalm 8 is a psalm about creation. David, laying out on the hillside one night as a shepherd, stares up into the sky. And if you've ever been, if you live in the country or you've ever been in the country, which hopefully would be all of us, you know that when there's no city lights around, the sky is just beautiful on a, a clear night. And that's what David would have experienced. He would look up and he would see these stars and he would see the heavens and he would be amazed that God created all of this. And it begins to stop and ponder and, and say, who are we? I mean, what are we? I mean, we're not that fantastic when you think of all that you've created and how, why do you care about us so much? Why do you love, why on earth did you give us authority over this world you created? I mean, David literally is just sitting there and his mind is blown by this. Now, in this translation, this is the Hebrew translation, not the Greek one that we read, because in our passage today from Hebrews 2, it says God created men a little lower than angels. A majority of scholars believe that that word angels should be translated God. It's the word Elohim in the scriptures. And if you look at this chart, this is the word Elohim used in the Old Testament. The overwhelming majority of the time that the word Elohim is written, it is referring to God. It can refer to goddess, heavenly beings, all of these other things. Look at that sliver. Most scholars think, as you look at the context of this psalm, 
It is not saying that we were created a little bit lower than the angels. Most of them believe that it says we were created a little bit lower than God. Well, why'd they translate it angels? Because you gotta understand for the Jews, they didn't even say God. God was so high and up there that they didn't write his name. They wrote the first letter of his name and that was it. They never, never spoke his name. If you spoke the name of God, it was blasphemy and you would be stoned because you were treating it common. And so the the concept that we were created a little lower than God, there's no way that's what that means, at least for the Jews. They're not gonna write. But David was a man after God's heart. David understood something. David understood that we were created in the image of God. We were given an authority on this earth that the angels were not given. And in Hebrews chapter two, it goes on and talks about the fact God did not send his son to redeem angels. There are angels that have, been, that have fallen from heaven. They are on the earth, we refer to them as demons, and they will be cast into outer darkness one day where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth for all of eternity. And God did nothing to redeem them back. So to say that we as human beings were created lower than the angels would do a disservice to how God created us. We are not created below angels. We are created, as David says, a little lower. I almost hate to say it because even in my mind, it's like so crazy to think that David would pen the words that we were created a little lower than God. We are in his image. We are created as his representatives on this earth. And what Jesus did when he came back was to restore that relationship, that dignity, that destiny to mankind. He came to show us the value that God placed on us. Man and not angels was given authority over all things. That's what the psalmist is declaring in Psalm chapter eight. That's what the writer of Hebrews ultimately declares too, but they can't wrap their mind around the fact that we were created a little lower than God. Let's just say angels for that sake. We were created a little bit lower than angels as they say. So The writer of Hebrews then goes on and says, you know, man has been given authority over all things, but we don't see that. Do you see that? I mean, when you look at the world today, does it look like everything is under control and the authority, I mean, it's just, it's good. All things are under the control of man. Well, it does kind of look like that, but it doesn't look like all of these things have been restored. It doesn't look like God put all of these things back into place. So is the psalmist out of his mind? Is the Hebrews out of his mind? No, we don't see it yet, but what do we see? We see Jesus. We see Jesus. What's he mean by that? Hebrews chapter two. Jesus was given a position a little lower than the angels. They're just quoting they're quoting that Elohim. So again, what, what he's saying is Jesus was created as a man. Jesus was not created a little lower than the angels. He was created as a man. And men are not created lower than angels. God doesn't redeem them. God doesn't give them that position. That's the value he placed on humans. Understand that. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Jesus has been restored as a human, to that position that man was created to have. He's been crowned with glory and honor. He, by God's grace, tasted death for everyone. God, for whom and through whom all things were made, chose to bring many children 
into glory. That same glory and honor that Jesus restored, God's desire was to bring all of us into that glory. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus makes them holy. He's not making them holy. Now, I know we are being made holy by the Holy Spirit, but Jesus makes us holy. This is a position. You've got to understand this. When Jesus tasted death for you and I, by putting faith in the death that he died for us, we are made holy with God. We are positioned with dignity, with honor, once again. Not because you earn it, not because you live a life worthy of it, you never will. Jesus was the perfecter, the author and perfecter. He started it and he finished it. Everything we do doesn't come into play in our position. You've been restored by position to a place of honor and glory on the earth. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus did. The authority that we should have inherited from Adam we now inherit by faith in Jesus. There's nothing you can do to get more of it. When God looks at you, he no longer sees you. So he doesn't say, well, your behavior this week, you, you know, you, you're in position with, no. Your position is based from beginning to end on the work of Jesus only. That's it. Not only did Jesus come to restore, he came to release. He came to release us. The writer of Hebrews tells us he released us from everything that has held us back from living in our destiny. He has held us back. We inherited fear of death and sin from Adam. We were controlled by sin, we were controlled by fear, and Jesus came to release us from that. And when he shed his blood, he bought our release. In Romans 3, the Apostle Paul says, all of us have sinned. We all fall short of God's standard. In Romans 6, he says that we were once slaves of sin. We let ourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led even deeper into sin. And the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And what the writer of Hebrews says is, Jesus became a man. He became flesh and blood. Why? because he could only die as a man. He could not die as God. So he set aside his privileges, his rights, his divine attributes, and he came to earth as a human because only as a human could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil, death. That's why he had to come. Sin demanded payment. It demanded death. And so Jesus came. He was the sinless man. God poured out all of his wrath on Jesus. Every bit of wrath that God had against sin was poured out on Jesus. That's why Paul can now say God is no longer counting our sins against us. He doesn't need to because they have been counted against Jesus. Now you and I have been positioned, restored to position, released from sin, from the fear of death, from the fear of judgment. We don't need to live in that fear. We've been released from it. I know what you're saying, but I don't see that. 
I mean, if I've been set free, why is there still fear in my heart? Why is there still fear in my life? Why am I still sinning? Why am I still bound to these things? We don't need to see it. What we need to see is Jesus. All things have been put under his feet. And I know when we look at our lives, just like the writer of Hebrews, we don't see that yet. But what we do see is Jesus. He is the author and the finisher of my faith. The Apostle Paul, in the words we read today, says, I'm the chief of sinners. In the book of Romans, if you remember, he says, I read the law and I do the things that I don't want to do and the things that I want to do, I don't do them. Who will set me free from this life? I'm, I, I just, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who sets me free. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. It's a position. And the moment we put faith in Christ, it's where we go. He is the perfect leader and he was made perfect for us by suffering. He didn't come to earth as God and flaunt his power and by force take back what Adam lost. No, he became perfect by suffering. He yielded himself to the Father. He took the full weight of sin on himself and he has been made perfect and is again seated at the right hand of the Father where he stepped out of to come here and now he's even made more perfect if that was possible than he was before because he's perfect as a man for us. He's the perfect author of salvation. That's what it says. Now, the last word is the word relates. He not only restores, he not only releases, but he relates to us. And the writer of Hebrews tells us this. He became one of us and he relates to what we face. Everything that you and I go through in this life, remember who he's writing to. The Hebrews that are being persecuted, they're being tortured, they're losing their possessions, they're losing family members. He's writing to them and he says, he knows what you're going through. He suffered just like each and every one of us. He was made like us in every single way. And as he was made perfect, so you and I can be made perfect. Now, we already are made perfect because of his position, but as we work that out in our lives so that other people can see that, he gives us the strength and the power to be able to do that. And when I don't measure up, when I fall into that sin for the umpteenth time, I cover myself with my position in Christ. I confess my sin and my weakness before God. I don't have to wallow before him. I don't have to put on sackcloth and ashes and show him how really sorry I am that I did it. I just have to acknowledge it. I have to acknowledge, God, you said this is sin. It is sin. It has no place in my life. I did it. I confess it to you, and I hide myself under the position of Jesus. If you, just try, if you try to make deals with God, God, I'm really sorry that I did that, and I won't do it again. I promise. I'm going to take extra steps to make sure. Do you know what you're doing? You're doing what Paul said. I, I don't want to do these things, and the more I don't want to do it, the more I do it. You will never be made right by trying harder. The only way we get made right is to hide ourselves under our position in Christ. He relates to us. In Hebrews chapter four, he says, Jesus, our high priest, understands our weakness. He faced the same testings we do and he did not sin. 
So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God and we'll receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Now, my human mind is Jesus faced the same thing I do and he did not sin. So now when I come before him, I feel guilty because he did it. He didn't sin and I sinned. Can I tell you, it is not the Holy Spirit telling you you should feel guilty when you come before Jesus. The scripture says you should come before the throne of grace with confidence. Why? Because of your position in Christ. Jesus knew you would never be able to measure up. He didn't think, okay, Father, I know they can't measure up right now, but once I die, then they'll be able to measure up. No, that's why he is the author and the finisher of our faith because we cannot measure up ever. We will always fail. And he knew that when he came. While we were his enemies, while we were at our worst, he came for us. And so while he wants you to acknowledge that you have sinned, he doesn't want you to come to a place where you stop acknowledging it, where you start rationalizing it, where you start saying, well, you know, I know the Bible says that's sin, but I don't really think God means that. Yes, he absolutely does mean it, and he wants you to confess it, but he wants you to stay hidden in your position in Christ as you confess it. So don't come wallowing into his presence. Come into his presence. Because the mercy of Jesus is patient. It never runs out. He doesn't look at us with a disappointed face. I knew you were going to do that again. I told you. No, he offers mercy. You know how freeing this can be? When you come into his presence and you just receive the mercy that he wants to give you. But then he also says he wants to give us grace. And that grace empowers us to live more like him. And all the while that I'm trying to work that out, I don't live in shame. I don't live in condemnation. I don't live in guilt. I don't live in fear. Why? Because of my position in him. There's so much freedom that I can work this salvation out in. It's like the pressure's taken off. I'm already made perfect, so while I'm trying to be more perfect, I'm perfect. In Philippians chapter two, Paul writes it this way. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others. You have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. You must have, excuse me, the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor, gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He sealed our position. But dear friends, you've always followed my instructions when I was with you. Now that I'm away, it's even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear, not afraid of judgment, but fear, reverence, and honor to God. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what's pleasing to him. Some days it doesn't feel like I'm getting the desire or power to do what pleases him. 
Some days it feels like I'm no better off than I was when I started this journey. But the scripture declares I am positioned with Christ in heavenly places and he's giving me the grace and the mercy that I need. And so when I don't feel like I have the grace, I go to his throne and say, God, I need your grace. Here's what I feel. Here's what my flesh is saying today. I need your enablement. I need your power. I can't do this. I don't have the willpower. Give me the power. Give me the strength. Give me the mercy that I need today to be able to walk this out, to be able to overcome that shame, that guilt. And so when Paul says, don't live your life as a slave to sin, what he's saying is, sin is beneath you. You've been restored to son and daughter of God. Sin is beneath you. That's not what you were created for. That's not your destiny. Your destiny was to rule and reign as a son and daughter of the most high God on earth. Sin is beneath you. Don't stay there. Just because your position is here, don't let your action be here. God is not soft on sin. He does not say, okay, just allow that little bit of sin in your life. No, that little bit of sin will always grow up and become big sin. And what happens then is our position goes away because this now becomes our new master. He's no longer my master. This is my master. Because sin will always do that. So he says, get it out of our lives. Live up here. You don't have to be arrogant when you go before the throne of God, but you are a son and a daughter of God, and you can go with confidence before the throne of God, even though you have sinned again for the umpteenth time, because your position is in Christ. We don't go wallowing and trying to pay our penance. God, I'm really sorry this time. He's not moved by your sorrow. He's moved by the blood that was shed for you. Hide yourself in that. For those of you that maybe feel like I'm being too soft on sin, don't worry, next week we get another warning. Because <laughs> in, in Hebrews chapter three, we're warned about what to do when we hear his voice today and the destructive and the deceptive nature of sin. Today is about understanding our position, our value. And we're gonna come and we're gonna celebrate communion together in just a few moments. And the reason that we are told over and over again to, to do this often, when Jesus left, he said, do this often. Because this is supposed to remind us of our value. This is supposed to remind us of our position. This is supposed to remind us that we've been released. This is supposed to remind us that Jesus relates to where we are. All of these things that Hebrews says, this is what this reminds us of. And so that's why we're gonna partake today. We're gonna be reminded that he tasted death for us. We're gonna be reminded that he restores the glory and the honor that we were created with. We're gonna be reminded that he restores us to the position as sons and daughters with dominion over the earth that God has designed to give us. It has, we've been released from anything that is gonna keep us back. We've been released from fear. We've been released from guilt. We've been released from shame and from condemnation. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith and he relates to my struggle. He relates to me. He offers me mercy. He doesn't lecture me. He releases me from guilt. He releases me from shame. He gives me grace. He gives me the empowerment to walk as a son and a daughter and to rule with him here on the earth. He gives me that power. The blood of Jesus Christ is amazing. And so we're going to, if you've got uh, children here with you, we're going to go ahead and dismiss our kids. Pastor John's going to meet them in the back, and they're going to go downstairs, and he's going to explain communion a little bit more to them, and they're going to partake of communion down there together, and we're going to take uh, partake of communion up here together. And so I'm going to ask the men, um, 
and maybe ladies, I don't remember if I asked a lady to help today, but those of you that are helping me serve communion, if you would come and we're gonna pass out the elements and uh, I've got a video that I wanna show you as we do that. And so let's just wait for everyone to be served and then we'll partake of the elements together.
of Jesus is our victory. Whenever I remember taking communion as a child, it was always such a quiet and somber moment. And, and I get it. I get that Jesus suffered horrifically for us. And it, when we picture it, when we imagine it, um, it, it does. It, it, he did that for us. But can I tell you something? He knew what he was getting himself into. He didn't step out of heaven and then somewhere on the cross realize, oh man, if I would have known. He knew fully what he was about to embrace. And the scripture says he did it willingly for us out of love. And so when we come to this table, he doesn't want us to come to this table and just feel sorry again that we, had, we did this to him. What he wants us to imagine is how much he loves us. Look at the value he has placed on your life. He was willing to do that when you didn't even care who he was. When we were his enemies, he did this for us. He did this knowing that even after he did it, most of us would still never be able to measure up. We would still make the same mistakes we made. And he did it to prove his love for us. So when we come to the table, we, we remember our value. We remember the great price paid for us. And then Paul tells us in Corinthians, examine yourselves. Don't drink the cup or eat the bread in an unworthy manner. Check your lives. And so we used to always think of every sin we possibly ever committed because if there was any, this is the fear that in my heart as a child that if there was an unconfessed sin in my life and I took communion, that I would drink God's judgment on my life. I don't think that's what Paul meant. Paul understood the destructive and the deceptive nature of sin. And as we talked about last week in the drift, we can come to a place where we, God's word says don't do this, but we, we say it's okay. I know that God's word says this is sin, but you know he knows I have needs or he knows you know that I can just keep doing this. And so in this moment, when we come to the cross and we remember how much he loved us, we also need to recognize that sin is not nice. And I know that we think I can allow this little bit of sin in my life and I can put it in this corner over here and I'm just gonna keep it. Pastor, I'm only gonna sin right here. I'm just gonna put it. It never stays there. Sin desires to master you. And this picture should be a forever reminder to us. This is where sin always ends up. We don't want it in our lives. He died to set us free from it. So this is where we don't end up. So when Paul says examine our hearts, yeah, we should make sure that we're calling sin, sin. That if there's an area of our lives where we've said, no, I know that you say that's sin, God, but I'm okay not calling it sin. And as the writer of Hebrews later says, don't trample on the blood that was shed for you. If you deliberately continue to sin after you've received the knowledge of the truth, there's no sacrifice left. I mean, it's like walking into a doctor's office this week and saying, you know, could you just inject one cancer cell into my body? You know, just one. I mean, I only want one. When, you know what happens? That cancer cell begins to multiply and it begins to attack good cells. And if we allow sin in our lives, this is the result. God was not shocked by that. 
And some of our sin looks okay. I mean, it looks good. We rationalize it here in America that, you know, God is a God of love. He understands that, you know, you, you should be able to, to do these things that make you feel good because God loves you. Absolutely God loves you. And that picture is proof of it. But if you allow the rationalizations of the world into your life and think you can keep sin contained in this little compartment, you'll be fooled. And so we come to this table to remember the value he's placed on us, the price he paid for us, but we also come to remember there's a destructive nature of sin. And even though I'm positioned with Christ, I don't want to allow it to rule in my life because it will not stay where I tell it to stay. It will always try to take control. And that's what this table is all about. And so you've got the elements in your hands that represent the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, when he met with his disciples, they had no idea what he was telling them. They had no idea what they were about to get into. But Jesus knew what that moment was all about. He knew the price that was going to be demanded of him. He knew that one person around that table was going to betray him. And yet he, he gave them this covenant. He said, this is my covenant with you. This is my body. This is my blood. And they're shed for you. And they're going to position you as sons and daughters of God. They're going to release you from the fear of death. They're going to release you from the power of sin. And you're going to be able to come before my throne and I'm going to be able to relate with where you are every moment because of what I'm about to face. What he's faced. Everything we have suffered, he understands. And he doesn't stand there ready to judge us. He stands there ready to offer mercy and grace. And every time we eat and drink, we remember that. Jesus, I thank you that you came to this earth willingly. You gave your life for us. You stepped out of heaven and you set aside your rights and you set aside the privileges that you had as God. You were well within your right to just extinguish us, to just start over. But because of the value that you placed on us, because of your love towards us, you came. And you took our punishment. You tasted death for us. And now by putting our faith in you, we're seated with you in those heavenly places. We've been positioned with you. You've restored to us the glory, the honor, the rights, the privileges as your children that we should have inherited from Adam. Jesus, thank you for that. Thank you for positioning us as your sons, as your, as your brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of our Father. Thank you for breaking the fear of death, the power of sin in our lives. And thank you when we come before your throne, your mercies are new every morning. Your grace empowers us to walk as sons and daughters of the King. And so as we partake of these elements today, we, we recognize the position that you've placed us in. We recognize what you've released us from. And we honor you in this moment. Thank you for your sacrifice. Empower us to live 
as your sons and your daughters, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake of the elements together. I want to invite you to stand with me. And in just a few, a few, just these last few moments, would you vocalize your thanks to him for what he's done? Would you begin to praise him for who he is, for the love that he has bestowed on us, for restoring to us all of the things that he's given to us? <laughs> Jesus, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for willingly coming to this earth to give your life for us. Root us and ground us today in that love. Mm. God, we echo the words of David today. Who are we that you are so mindful of us? But yet we see your love. Help us, Holy Spirit, to understand it, to be rooted in it, to be grounded in it, to know the position that we've been restored to because of the blood that was shed for us. Help us to know we've been released from the fear of death, from the power of sin in our lives. Father, release mercy in this room right now that would break shame, that would break guilt, that would break condemnation, God, that would break every lie of the enemy, that we don't measure up, that we're worthless. Release your mercy to understand the value you've placed on every one of our lives. God, release your grace into us right now. That as we walk through this world this week, God, that we would walk like sons and daughters of the Most High. God, that our words would not be beneath the position that you've brought us to, that our, our actions would not be beneath the position that you've brought us in, but God, that we would be able to walk as sons and daughters, exercising your authority over this earth again. So Holy Spirit, for your mercy and your grace, we ask today, Empower us with it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, if you need to be dismissed, um, do it quietly. We wanna let this be a place of prayer for those that maybe wanna spend some more time in prayer. Or if you've not been prayed for and you would like someone to pray with you, our prayer team will be here for a few more moments. We'd love the opportunity to pray with you. God bless you as you go today.